Ephesians chapter 1, the first 11 verses. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you, and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will." To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded to us, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed, in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. And all God's people said, Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray Thee, Lord, that You would open up the Scripture unto us, that we would might appreciate that God works everything out after the counsel and purpose of His own will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I wanted to share some things with us this morning associated with world political and global events that can be resolved or wrapped around the one verse here, which we find other places in Scripture, which I'll speak of about God working everything according to the purpose of himself and all things after the counsel of his own will. Now, if you read Ephesians chapter 3, excuse me, chapter 1 here, these first 11 verses here, we should appreciate that God, in fact, works everything out after the counsel and purpose of his own will, particularly and I, particularly as it applies to us in the context of our salvation. He has called us or, um, unto himself through his son, Jesus Christ. We've been predestinated unto salvation, that we would be holy and without blame before him in love, all before the foundation of the world. We were foreknown by God, which means he loved us from before the foundation of the world. And we're going to talk more about that when we get to John chapter 17. But... Your salvation and my salvation was never in question, nor was it ever in jeopardy. There's nothing that can, um, no thing can ever remove us from the hands of God. We talked about that earlier in the Gospel of John, that we are kept in him. Uh, First Peter talks about the preservation of the saints, and we're going to see some of that in terms of what our deacon read for us this morning. But there is nothing that can jeopardize our salvation, nothing that ever could jeopardize our salvation, nothing that ever will jeopardize our salvation. We are complete in Christ, and we are safe in Christ. We are united with him, and as surely as Jesus is in heaven, so are we too in Christ. You'll notice that the word in in appears several times in this scripture. Now, Jesus is both Lord and Savior. A number of years ago, I was a young Christian in a church that had a young pastor who had just come out of seminary, and he was speaking about how there, were, there was this idea, and I don't know where it came from, whether it came from young pastors or it came from immature Christians, that there's a separation between 
Jesus as Lord and Jesus as Savior, as though he might be one in an individual's life and not the other. Well, it depends which way you look at. He is Savior and Lord of all of the saints, but he is indeed Lord over all the earth, but not Savior over all people. So whether a person gets on their knees and confesses that Jesus is Lord, in the context of where it says in Philippians about how every um, knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord, that doesn't mean necessarily that Jesus died for you. It's a confession that Jesus has died for your sins and that you have repented from your sins, wherein one's salvation is, um, is involved. Even the devils believe in God and tremble. We know that Nebuchadnezzar made a confession that, uh, that the God of the Hebrews was the God of the Most High, and people think that that's a confession of faith, and therefore he uh, um, became a believer at the end. But I would say that that is not the case. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is a type of Satan, and Satan's knees too shall bend and confess that Jesus is Lord. But Jesus did not die for any of the angels, and he did not die for any of the, re- of the unregenerate. He died for his people, and only his people, and every one of them will confess that he is Lord and Savior. Now, the reason I'm talking so I, I want to talk about um, the Lord working out everything after the counsel of his own will is because of what's going on in the world again. And so that tends to um, take our eyes off of Christ and we begin to focus on world global events. And so remember all the turmoil that we went through with the last presidential campaign and election. You know, we read the polls and that Trump was going to win and there were many people prophesying that he was going to win. And uh, then we started looking in the book of Daniel and we read about how Daniel says that God puts the basis of men upon the throne. God is ever sovereign and he determines who sits in every principality and power, whether they be visible principalities and powers on this planet or whether or not they be heavenly principalities and powers. He has created all things. And so we went through this process of uh, turmoil, emotional turmoil about the election, and then we moved into the turmoil associated with the government's response to the, uh, what I'll call it a pandemic about their response to COVID and how difficult that was to try to negotiate and navigate through as though maybe God wasn't really sovereign in charge of all of this foolishness, but he is indeed in charge of everything. Now, you'll recall some time ago, maybe it was in January when I preached a sermon, I think I called it deja vu all over again, something like that. But I made reference to a word that is a new word in my vocabulary about democide. And you can look it up under the University of Hawaii where a professor has done a study on all the people that were killed by the government last century, and he has come up with the number 262 million. That's how many people the beast, the government, he says, killed last century. And so in that sermon, we talked about what's written in Ecclesiastes in terms of that that thing which hath been is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done, and there is no new thing under the sun. Whatever happened last century happened before. It's going to happen again this century. And is it happening now? Is it starting up? Are we moving into a period of great violence in Europe and that may consume the world? We might. I don't know. But the important thing for us is to always keep our eyes on the heavenly Jerusalem, which is a city with foundations whose builder and maker is God. That's Hebrews 11.10. We are to keep our eyes focused on the heavenly Jerusalem. Speaking of the early individuals of faith, we read in verses 13 through 16 of Hebrews chapter 11. Speaking of them, the Lord says, These all died in faith, 
not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. So my prayer to everyone here is that we can see these promises, that we can see heavenly Jerusalem far off. As we continue, it says, and we're persuaded of them and embrace them, that would be the promises, and confess that they were strangers and pilgrims on this earth, on the earth, just as we are. We are pilgrims and strangers on the earth. For they say, for they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. Being pilgrims and strangers on this earth, we declare that this is not our earth and that we seek a different country. We seek the heavenly Jerusalem. Verse 15, And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country that is in heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. And that city, of course, is Christ himself. He's the heavenly Jerusalem. It's the heavenly Mount Zion. And we just read here in Ephesians chapter 1 that we are in him. So we are, as it says in Hebrews chapter 12, we have come to a building and city whose maker is God. And we are united with the heavenly host because we are in Christ. Now, as we just read in here, it talks about how if they had been mindful of that country from which they come out, which they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. In Luke chapter 17, verse 32, the Lord warns people. He says, remember Lot's wife. What was her heart on? What was her mind on? Where she had come out of it. It was on Sodom. In Genesis 19, 17, it says, and it came to pass when they had brought them forth, meaning the angel of the Lord, and he said, escape for thy life, Look not behind thee, neither stay thou in all the plain. Escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed. Do not look behind. And then in verse 26 of Genesis 19, it says, But his wife looked back from behind him. She became a pillar of salt. She's loitering. She's mindful about returning from when she has come. Where is her heart? It's back in Sodom. You recall that when Lot separated from Abram, it says he pinched he pitched his tent lot in the plain with, uh, towards these cities. And so if you were to appreciate the geography of, um, in Genesis where it uh, talks about how the cities are laid out, Sodom was at the southern end of a long list of cities that are on the, east, the west side of the uh, Dead Sea. And so as Lot got drawn into that, as his heart was fixed on his wife, she was obviously uh, somebody from those cities, and he descended further and further Um, into this issue of getting caught up in the world. But that's not where his heart was. His heart was with the Lord. And we know that when we read 2 Peter, that he was vexed by the filthy conversation um, of their conduct. So his heart was towards the Lord, but not his wife's. So she was caught up in the world, and she turned into a pillar of salt. Again, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, we read that our conversation is is in heaven, which is what I've been speaking to us to about. Our conversation is in heaven. Our governmental throne is the throne of Christ, and that is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Believe what the scripture says. Jesus is going to subdue all things unto himself. And so we keep our eyes heavenward. We keep our eyes focused on Christ. And we have a job to do here, uh, which we've been tasked to do. You know, in Matthew chapter 28, the Lord gives the great commission that we go out into the world and we preach the gospel. 
And so 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 says that of us. It says, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. So that's what ambassadors do. They represent the kingdom from which they come. We have a heavenly kingdom. We are servants of the Lord. And he declares here, calls us that we are ambassadors. So we represent his interests in the, in the world, which basically is to tell the world to surrender. Otherwise, uh, you will be destroyed. We are also cautioned in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, that we are not to get caught up in the affairs of this world. Thou, therefore, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. So he's using the analogy here of about a soldier. He says in verse 4 of 2 Timothy chapter 2, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. So as a soldier, you are prepared to die for your king. And you can't be thinking about um, the things of this world and get caught up in the affairs of things because you have to pay attention to the battle that's set in front of you and you have to prosecute it with the best of your abilities, lest you be slain. So in the context here as a good soldier, we don't get entangled up in the world. We keep our eyes fixed on the Lord and our thoughts fixed upon him and we go about and do the things that he has tasked us to do. It's ever prudent to remind ourselves that God is going to destroy this world. Not only is he going to burn it up, it gets better or worse, however you look at it, it's actually going to be dissolved. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, you can read that about that, where he talks about how he's going to come as a thief of the night. Everything's going to pass away with a great noise. He's going to burn up the works and the earth, that is, the earth and the works that are therein. Everything's going to be dissolved. And the question is set before us, or the paradigm is set before us, that we need to pay attention to the Lord, that we need to be uh, um, conduct ourselves uh, with holy conversation and godliness. Now, further in Scripture, it talks about the new heaven and the new earth is going to come. And so that's what we appreciate, that God created time itself. And then in Revelation chapter 10, he talks about how there's going to be time no more. It's going to come a day when this um, process is all over, and we are going to be living for eternity in the new heaven and the new earth uh, because the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. And so when we consider now what's going on in Europe, um, everything is going according to the way God wants it to do. And so I want to talk more about that um, right now. When you consider the war in Ukraine, you no doubt are getting the same news feed that I'm getting, and there is so much deception in it that we can't sort through and find out what's true. You know, when we read in John about the Lord teaching us through the Holy Ghost um, truth, I mentioned to us that the article the is there, teaching us about the truth. Sometimes Christians can think that they are not deceived, that they have this ability to sort through um, fact and fiction and what's true and what's not true. But that is not true. And so I would say this to anybody who thinks that, that if you think you are not being deceived, you are already deceived because you've been deceived into thinking you're not being deceived. Satan deceives the whole world. And um, he is a liar. He's the father of lies. And he was a murderer from the beginning. And we know that a voice, a mouth was given to the beast. Satan is the power behind the beast. He has a mouth. And every time you turn on the news, you're listening to the mouth of the beast. So they would tell us all these, give us all these reasons about why Putin is doing what he's doing. Well, he's after the oil and the gas. You know, he's going to raise prices because 60% of Germany's 
Oil comes from Russia, they say, and uh, you would have to appreciate that what's taking place today is rooted in things that have been going on for many years prior to this because Germany closed all their nuclear power plants a number of years ago and made themselves dependent. So God doesn't just do things overnight. These things start years ahead. Um, Others would say that the reason that we're going to get sucked up in this is because of the Monroe Doctrine, which says that, you know, that's what Kennedy fell back on when he, uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, when he, with um, some sense of righteousness, um, said that the Russians had to get their missiles out of Cuba because it was in the Western Hemisphere and it was a threat unto us, as though a Western sympathetic Ukraine would not be a threat to Russia. So there's, there's so much hypocrisy that's revolved, involved in all of these things. I simply want to share to us that the pundits do not know the heart of man, nor do they know the will of God. They do not know what he's doing. They do not know why he's doing it. And let me share this with you. Neither does Putin know why he's doing what he's doing. In Romans chapter 11, verse 34, it says, For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor? God is ruling and reigning over all these things, and people do not know why God is having these events take place. In Jeremiah 17, 9, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Putin does not even know his own heart. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 2, it talks about how people do the will of the prince of the power of the air. Putin, I believe, is a, uh, in bondage to Satan, like all people who are not regenerate are, and he's in bondage to sin. So he's doing, really, the will of Satan. But ultimately, he's doing the will of God himself. Nothing ever happens on this planet that God is not intimately involved in. So the media, we know, is biased. They don't understand what's happening here. And Putin doesn't know why he's doing what he's doing. But let me show you why Putin is doing what he's doing. Putin is doing what he is doing because it serves God's purpose. Putin is doing what he's doing because it serves God's purpose. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1, it says, To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. God has determined that this is the season for the Russians to go into Ukraine. In Ecclesiastes verses, uh, chapter 3, verse 17, I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. We already read that God has a purpose and he has a will. Everything happens according to his purpose and according to his will, and so does this. He works all things out after the counsel of his own will. That includes... Our salvation, certainly, and it also includes political events. Who would have thought that Jesus was slain according to the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God? I mean, when you read through the accounts of the Gospels, it appears that a, um, a mob has taken place, and it's, it's, a, it's a legal lynching, if you will. They take him before the, um, the uh, Hebrew kangaroo court, you know, before the Sanhedrin, and then they box him before Herod and before um, Pontius Pilate. And then he's crucified on the cross. But the scriptures tells us that it was by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. It's in Genesis chapter 1 where the Lord says, Amongst the Trinity, let us make man after our own likeness. Uh, and so 
God does not confer with anyone but himself when he does the things that he does. Um, in Acts, the next couple of chapters, it speaks, the Lord says here, For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together, verse 28, for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Christ was crucified according to God's purpose and according to God's uh, will within the counsel of the Godhead and, and none other. We know that for of him, that is Christ, and through him and to him are all things to whom glory, uh, to whom be glory forever. Now I'd mentioned to you in Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 that um, by Christ were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. So principalities and powers, whether they be visible or invisible, were created by God and for God. Now, when we looked at, or when we our, our deacon read for us, 1 Kings chapter 22, I want to take a look at that for a minute because there it is set before us some things which I find very interesting. 1 Kings chapter 22. Therein we see that um, the, um, the king of Israel, which would be the northern ten tribes, has asked Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, he's also ruling over Benjamin, to come and assist him in a war with the Syrians. Now, Jehoshaphat never should have done that, but he made the mistake that a lot of Christians make and that he became unequally yoked. And we're not to be unequally yoked with non-believers. When we look at this section in here, we should appreciate that Jehoshaphat is a vessel of mercy and Ahab is a vessel fitted for destruction. It speaks of what it says in Romans chapter 9. Um, how did he link himself with Ahab? Well, his son had married one of Ahab's daughters. And so they were actually brothers-in-laws. Um, so there was a relationship there. And that's why he says down in verse 4, when asked by Ahab if he would come and fight. And it says here, And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as thou art, my people as thy people, my horses as thy horses. And this is because of the relationship that he has with him, that he's declaring himself to be one people with a people whom God has separated from his people. And so he's going against um, principles in scriptures. And when this is all said and done, Jehu is going to reprimand him and tell him he never should have done what he had done. But when we see what takes place here in terms of Ahab seeking the counselors of his prophets, um, we see that they are set up upon their thrones. In verse 10 of uh, 1 Kings 22, it says, And the king of Israel and, the king and, and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, each sat on his throne having put on the robes in a void or empty place in the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets prophesied before them. Now, as I mentioned to you in, from Daniel, God puts the basis of men upon the thrones. God has put both of these men on the thrones, and God has determined that he's going to remove Ahab from his throne because of his evil deeds. And we're going to see that takes place, how that um, plays itself out here. But we have a earthly government, earthly principalities and powers are gathered in the gate of um, Samaria. And those kings are sitting in a void place with their robes on. Then we go down to verse 19, and we see that there's a heavenly uh, set of principalities of powers. 
and verse 19, and it says, And he said, Hear thou therefore the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the hosts of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left. The Lord is sitting on his throne, and he's not sitting in an empty place. He's not sitting in a void place. He's sitting on his throne. And let me assure you that he is king over these two kings. He is king of king and lord of lords, and he's ruling and reigning on the lives of these men. He's ruling and reigning in their hearts. As it says in Proverbs 21:1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. So um, he tells us here that um, emissaries of Satan go and put a lie in the um, mouths of all of uh, Ahab's um, uh, prophets. Verse 22, and the Lord said unto him, wherewith? I'll pick it up in verse 19, actually, after I read about this. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who shall persuade Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said on this matter and another said on that manner. And there came forth a spirit and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. Verse 22, and the Lord said unto him, wherewith? And he said, I will go forth and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, thou shalt persuade him and prevail also. Go forth and do so. The Lord is telling him to go ahead and do what he has said to do. So in this spiritual realm, these individuals are um, going to convince Ahab to go to battle. And Jehoshaphat is going to go with them. So what I'm sharing with you here so that we would appreciate what's going on in Ukraine takes place not only in the physical realm, principalities and powers, but in the spiritual realm as well. There are things going on in the spiritual realm that none of these pundits in the media have any idea about, nor would they ever acknowledge. But that's the fact. That's the truth. You recall in the book of Daniel that Daniel lays out the um, governments that are going to secede one another in terms of their impact on uh, Jerusalem, in terms of their impact on uh, Israel. The Bible contains the history that God would have us to know so much as it impacts or affects or has us appreciate the gospel. He doesn't include the details of other things that take place in world history, but we can certainly draw truths out of what he teaches us in the Bible with respect to how it affects his people. In Daniel, he tells Nebuchadnezzar that the Babylonians are going to be seceded by the Medes and Persians, who will be seceded by the uh, Greeks, who will be seceded by the Romans. He lays it out for them. And that's exactly what happens in in world history. So here, Ahab is going to fall in battle, uh, but not Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat is one of God's people, and God is going to protect him in this battle. So the lying spirit goes, and he convinces Ahab that he needs to go to battle. And so when we get down to verse um, 29, it says, So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead. Verse 30, And the king of Israel, that's a vessel of wrath fitted for destruction. God is sovereign over all things. And the king of Israel said unto Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and enter into the battle. But put thou on thy robes, and the king of Israel disguised himself and went into the battle. Would you do that if you were Jehoshaphat? Okay, I'll dress like a king, I'll go into battle, and you disguise yourself. Who do you think the Syrians are going to attack? They're going to go after the king. That's what I would do. You attack the king, you cut off the head, and then you kill the, um, the rest of the, the uh, individuals. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. So you go after the, the shepherd. So that's what Jehoshaphat agrees to do. 
but Jehoshaphat is a vessel of mercy. But the king of Syria commanded his thirty and two captains that had the rule over his chariots, saying, Fight neither with small or great, save only the king of Israel. Who are they going to go after? Jehoshaphat, because he's dressed like a king. Verse 32, And it came to pass, when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, Surely this is the king of Israel. And they turned aside to fight against him. And Jehoshaphat cried out, God is sovereign over everybody. In my mind's eye, I picture the combatants like flocks of birds that move, you know, as a unit across the field of battle here. Jehoshaphat's crying out, and it came to pass when the captains of the chariots perceived, I don't know how they perceived that, but they perceived that it was not the king of Israel, that they turned back from pursuing him. Where's the king of Israel? God knows where the king of Israel is. God knows where Abraham, excuse me, where Ahab is. And a certain man drew a bow at a venture and smote the king of Israel between the joints of the harness, wherefore he said unto the driver of his chariot, Turn thine hand and carry me out of the host, for I am wounded. A combatant at a venture draws his bow and fires it, and not only does it find uh, Ahab, the king of Israel, it finds a break in his armor and it slays him. God is sovereign. He's ruling on this field of battle. He's determined that Ahab... Um, will go to battle against the Syrians. He's moving one nation against another, and he's determined that Ahab will die in battle and that Jehoshaphat will not die in battle. So I want us to appreciate, again, with what's happening in world events, that God is sovereign over all the affairs of men. He knows exactly what's happening, and it is serving his purpose. In the book of Job, you see something similar in the context of God ruling and reigning over um, all things. In Job chapter 1, we know that um, Satan comes before the Lord and essentially petitions that God will remove his hand of grace from Job because every person uh, in this room, everybody that, that believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, has God's protective hand over them. If we did not have God's protective hand over us, I assure you that Satan would slay us in a heartbeat to squelch the light of the gospel in this world. In verse 12 here, it says, And the Lord said unto Satan, this is Job chapter 1, Behold, all that he hath, speaking of Job, is in thine power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. And what is he going to do? In verse 15, And the Sabians fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. So Satan moves the Sabians, another group of people, to come down and to attack um, Job and his family. Verse 16, and while he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of his God has fallen from heaven and hath burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I only am escaped alone to tell uh, thee. Again, Satan's minions are bringing fire from heaven. Verse 17, and while he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The Chaldeans came out three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away, yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. So the Chaldeans have been moved to be brought down. And again, this is all happening, we know, because of, um, of the heavenly principalities and powers. Verse 19, And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men, and they are dead, and I only am escaped alone to tell thee. So a great wind comes down. Again, God had said to Satan that he could go forth, but just not touch Job. Now, if you look over at Job chapter 2, 
verse 3, as things begin to escalate here, there's a statement here about the sovereignty of God. In verse 3 of Job chapter 2, And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and that cheweth evil? And still, in spite of all that you've done, and still he holdeth that his integrity, although thou movest me against him, to destroy him without a cause. God's shepherding hand is over everything that is taking place here, and God is permitting Satan to do what he's doing because it serves God's purpose. It serves God's purpose to let Satan do what he is doing. So I want us to appreciate again the principalities and powers that are in the physical realm as well as the principalities and powers that are in the heavenly realm. God knows everything. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending. Scripture tells us that the hairs of our head are numbered, but that means everybody on the planet too. It's like he's counting my hairs and he's not counting the fellow across the streets. The hairs on everybody's head is numbered. Not a sparrow falls from the sky without him knowing about it. He knows what's in the heart of man. um, And indeed, uh, all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. That's Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. Jeremiah 17.10 is, you know, I quoted the previous verse, but it says here, I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doing. God knows everything. He knows what people's motivation is. He knows why they're doing it. um, And he knows what they're doing. And he knows the fruit that it's going to bear. He is indeed the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the one that brings up one nation against another nation, and then he sends them back. The book of Isaiah speaks about that. It speaks about how he is going to bring, in the context here, he will bring the um, Assyrians down into uh, Judah um, for his purpose. In Isaiah chapter 10, verses 5 and 6, he said, O Assyrian, The rod of mine anger. God is going to use the nation of Assyria like they are a a tool by which he's going to chasten or spank his his people. He says, O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger and the staff in their hand is my indignation. I will send him, I, God, will send the Assyrians against a hypocritical nation and against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge to take the spoil and to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. God is going to do this. He's going to bring the Assyrians down. Verse 11. Shall I not, as I have done unto unto Samaria and her idols, so do to Jerusalem and her idols? In other words, I've already destroyed Samaria. Now I'm going to bring them down towards Jerusalem. Verse 12. Wherefore it shall come to pass that when the Lord hath performed his whole work upon Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his high looks. In other words, I'm going to use the Assyrians, bring them down, and they're going to do my work for me in uh, Jerusalem, around about Jerusalem, and then I'm going to destroy the Assyrians. Verse 13, and he tells us why. For he said, by the strength of my hand, I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I am prudent, and I have removed the bounds of the people, and have robbed their treasures, and I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. In other words, the Assyrians are taking credit for their victory over um, God's people. 
Verse 14, and my hand hath found as a nest the riches of the people, and as one gathered eggs that are left, have I gathered all the earth, and there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or peeped. Now he's going to try to remind, and I shouldn't say try, the Lord's going to remind us of his sovereignty and who's really in charge. Verse 15, shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth therewith. In other words, think of the lumberjack hewing down a tree. Does the axe take credit for um, chopping the tree and knocking it over? Does the axe boast against the lumberjack? Of course not. That's ridiculous. Shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth therewith? Or shall the saw magnify itself against him that shaketh it? As if the rod should shake itself against them that lift it up, or as if the staff should lift up itself, as it were, no wood. Of course not. God is the one wielding the rod, not the Assyrians. They are simply his tool. And so what's going on in Europe, again, is God is using these nations as tools to advance his kingdom in ways that I don't know or necessarily understand. I know what scripture says. I know who is sovereign over all things. And I know that it serves God's purpose. And it is happening according to his will. We know that the Assyrians are going to come down. And if you read in other places in scripture, he talks about bringing them down as the water overflows its bank and comes up to their neck. In other words, he's going to bring down the Assyrians, but they are not going to take Jerusalem. And when they are laying siege around about Jerusalem, the Lord destroys the Assyrian army. He sends the king of Assyria back home where he is killed by his own son. God was done with that rod and he destroyed it. So again, we can appreciate the sovereignty of God and all things. Now, I know we've all watched documentaries about World War II, and perhaps like me, you've been dismayed at how many attempts were made to assassinate Hitler, and they all failed. He died by his own hand. And why is that? Because he was a tool, he was a saw shaken by the Lord, he was a rod in the Lord's hand, and he served God's purpose according to God's will. And so it is in all the affairs of men that these things um, are a result of God doing what he would do in the life of us. So whether or not um, um, Nebuchadnezzar sits on the throne, whether it's not it's Darius, whether or not uh, you know, it's, it's Pharaoh, whether or not it's Alexander the Greek, Caesar Augustus, whether or not it's President Trump, President Biden, uh, Trudeau, um, Markle, Boris Johnson, Netanyahu, Putin, God has placed these individuals on the throne and they are serving his purpose. They are a rod in his hand and he's using them to direct one nation against another. And when he's done with them, he will destroy them. All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. So I know that what is happening in Europe is for my good. And I know that it's according to God's will and according to God's purpose. And so as a Christian, as one that loves the Lord, as one who is his ambassador, I am not going to get caught up in the affairs of this world. I will keep my eyes on the heavenly Jerusalem. There's no point in speculating why Putin's doing what he's doing. I know why he's doing it, because it serves God's purpose. He's not crazy. He's being led. He's being directed. He's got people on this planet that tell him what to do, but more importantly, he is subject to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He is subject to a sovereign God. So again, let us not get caught up in this conflict. Let us 
let it not catch our emotions. It is Satan who wants us to um, take our eyes off of Christ and get caught up in this fear-mongering. And we all know that um, fear and distress helps uh, sell newspapers. And we don't want to get caught up in that. We have to keep our uh, self in the Scriptures so that we can rest in these um, verses here, that it is the Lord who runs all things and that these people are simply tools in his hand. Uh, Jesus is King of King and Lord of Lords. And we'll meditate upon that this whole week here. Amen. Amen.